0: Tonight I'd like to talk about a few deeply conditioned, deeply habituated patterns of mind which when they are carelessly attended to cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from Nibbāna. And you guess what they are. But when we do attend to these states carefully, we see into their empty, transparent nature. We're no longer caught up in the power of their enchantment. The Buddha spoke very directly about these states. He said, in talking of the hindrances, When these hindrances are unabandoned in oneself, a bhikkhu, and a bhikkhu here means not only monk, but anyone who is practicing the Dhamma, a bhikkhu sees them respectively as a debt, a disease, a prison house, slavery, and a road across a desert. But when these five hindrances have been abandoned in oneself, That is seen as freedom from debt, healthiness, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and the land of safety. I think the Buddha did not use these metaphors carelessly. When we really look at our experience, we see that these are not just um, philosophical concepts but they ra- rather they reflect, these metaphors reflect the contraction of mind, the imprisonment of mind, when we're lost in the hindrances, and the freedom of mind that's possible, when we become aware of them. Because when I usually start with desire, I never get beyond desire, I'm actually going to start at the other end and only talk about three of them this evening. And the first of the three, in this, the three, in this reverse order, is doubt. Even in English, the word doubt can have several meanings. Now, doubt can refer to the state of mind of inquiry, of investigation where we're really questioning what it is that's happening. It's the opposite of blind belief. Now in Zen it's called the great doubt. It's really that question, who am I, what am I, what is this? So that's one meaning of the word doubt. But doubt as a hindrance really refers to what we could call skeptical doubt. And that's the mind of indecision the mind of uncertainty. It's like coming to a crossroads and then not knowing which way to go. The mind simply goes back and forth between the alternatives and doesn't go anywhere. This skeptical doubt, this indecision, this bewilderment, in terms of our meditation practice is actually quite a dangerous mind state. Because unnoticed, if we're not mindful of it, it brings our practice to a standstill. When doubt is strong and we're paralyzed by this indecision, it doesn't even give us the chance to make a mistake and to learn from our mistakes. Doesn't give us the opportunity to take a wrong turn and say, oh yeah, that was, that was the wrong path. I need to go this way. Doubt keeps us paralyzed in inaction. We're always checking ourselves. There's always, there's always vacillation. We're trying to decide. This was expressed, this, this inaction, The experience of this inaction was expressed very well by one of the great American saints, Yogi Berra, which for those of you not from this country (laughs) would take a long time to explain. (laughs) He was actually a baseball player. (laughs) But through some great unconscious wisdom, (laughs) really... Uh, provided uh, the American culture with many great koans. Well, one of one of his great uh, phrases of wisdom, which expresses so well this quality of doubt, he said, "When you come to a fork in the road, take it." <laughs> I think actually somebody could get enlightened contemplating that koan. <laughs> Well, in our meditation practice, in our own practice, doubt takes many different forms. It can be doubt about the practice itself. And we start wondering, what does sitting here watching my breath have to do with anything? You know, Of what use is it? It can really at times seem quite useless. And why are all these people around me moving like zombies? People coming in from the outside, it looks really strange. (laughs) You know, like the back ward of a mental hospital. (laughs) Or the doubt in our practice can take the form of thinking about other practices we've done in the past. You know, or ones we've heard about and then always just thinking and wondering and comparing. You know, that way seems so much easier, or quicker, or more fun. We can spend a lot of time lost in this thinking, comparing mind, and it causes confusion, it causes indecision. It causes this quality of perplexity. So There's doubt about the practice. Doubt can arise about the teachers. You now, especially for those of you who have been here already for six weeks, just when you finally got <laughs> used to the first team, then five new characters come in. You know, who are these guys anyway? And each one of us has, as you know, you know, quite a different style, a different perspective on practice. Doubts can begin to arise in the mind, well, who's right? You know, especially if on different nights or in interviews, You know, people are saying somewhat different things. Maybe there's some kind of inner personality contest going on. You know, and you feel, well, I really connect with this person, and I don't really connect with this other person. And we start judging or comparing on this personality level. And that really obscures the simplicity and the directness of the Dharma teachings. Perhaps most difficult of all, more difficult than doubts about the practice or the teachers, can be the very deeply conditioned pattern of self-doubt. Doubting one's own ability to practice. Thoughts of, am I doing this right? Or can I do this? You know, it's too hard, it's not the right time, maybe next year. It's important to understand this pattern of self-doubt because it doesn't only arise on retreat. Now, if we don't understand it and see through it, it can be quite a debilitating force in our lives. There's an expression in English which captures the difficulty of this state, of this mind state, now we say in English that some, someone is plagued by doubt. I find it interesting that that's the image that's used, doubt as a plague. And when we look at it in our minds, especially the sense of self-doubt, we see that it is a kind of plague, Instead of engaging in the practice fully and seeing for ourselves whether it's beneficial or not beneficial, instead of entering into it completely and then assessing its value, the mind can stay lost in endless speculations, endless thinking about it. And then the doubt becomes self fulfilling. Because staying staying lost in thought, staying lost in this indecision, in this vacillation really is useless. It doesn't lead any place at all. And it doesn't allow us the opportunity to investigate and see for ourselves. Now sometimes doubt is described as the thorny mind in the text. That's that's how it's characterized as a thorny mind that keeps jabbing us. And as long as we haven't learned to recognize it, see it, work with it, as long as we're subject to this doubting mind, it keeps jabbing us, and the mind begins to get very irritable, very discouraged, very dissatisfied. Now the great seduction of doubt, and the reason it's such a powerful force in you know, all of these various ways, both in our dharma practice and in our lives, is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. And that's why we get seduced again and again. We hear all these wise-sounding voices in our minds, you know, and it just sounds so reasonable, trying to figure things out, trying to figure our experience out, trying to see what it is that we should do through our thinking mind. Now thought is powerful and effective in many areas of our lives and in many aspects of the practice. But thought as a vehicle is always limited. There are many domains of experience which are beyond the range of thought. It's like trying to experience or have the experience of a good meal by reading the menu. Now we could read for hours and hours and hours and we'd never know the experience of a good meal. Thought concepts can only take us so far. Finally, the Dharma has to be tasted directly by each one of us. So what to do? This is a deeply conditioned pattern in the mind arising at different times. How do we work with it? How do we incorporate doubt into our practice? Obviously, the first and essential way of working is to recognize it when it arises. As soon as we're aware of doubting thoughts, to see it, recognize it, note it as doubting tape. If we notice it quickly, then we're not seduced by it. We're not caught up in the content. We're not caught up in that energy. I can't do it. It's too hard. Doubting tape. It's just another thought. That's all it is when we see it clearly, when we see it quickly. We don't give it any power. It's also interesting to bring our wisdom mind to the very process of doubting, because there's something interesting to learn about it. We can notice how when we're lost in doubt, it is actually taking us Far away from the experience. You know, with the other hindrances, whether it's desire for an object or aversion to an object or sleepiness or restlessness, in all of the other hindrances, we're at least in the vicinity of the object. You know, we may be relating in somewhat unhelpful ways, but at least we're, we're in the general vicinity. When we're lost in Tao, we're gone. We're not relating to the present experience at all. And we see this very clearly, because in a moment when we come back to the breath, when we come back to a sensation, when we come back to a sound, to a movement, in that moment of coming back, is there any doubt in the mind? When you're with the breath, or with hearing, there's no doubt, there's no confusion. The mind is clear, It's aware, it's mindful, we're present. So the first thing is just to note it, recognize it quickly, noting it, seeing how doubt is working to take us away from the object. It's also helpful at times to, especially when doubting is strong, you know, a self-judgment is strong. Just to reconnect with that basic quality of faith. Faith in the Dharma. Surrender to the Dharma. There were times early in my practice in India when I was having a lot of difficulty, the usual difficulties of practice, and there was a lot of self-judgment going on. And I was I was watching all this and I would remind myself, and these, the words I would say is Joseph just surrender to the Dharma. Your job for this period of time is to sit and walk. Just sit and walk and sit and walk. And I really made it very simple. I didn't have to engage in that inner dialogue. If doubts persist, really for a long time, sometimes intellectual clarification can help. You know, and I'm speaking with one of your teachers, because... The Buddha's teachings are so clear and so pragmatic and sometimes just clarification on that level can help to dispel this feeling of perplexity. That's the first of the hindrances and in some way the most difficult. As I say, when we're lost in doubt, our practice has really come to a standstill. So we need to be quite vigilant for the particular ways it arises in our mind. The second of the hindrances, in this reverse order, is restlessness, or worry, or agitation. In Pali, the word is Udacha. And this is the mind that's not resting on an object. Its characteristic nature is scattering. You know, becoming distracted. It's reflected in the very word restlessness. You know, it's the mind without rest. And we feel it like that. You know, when the restlessness is present, there's this disturbance in the mind, this unsettledness. There's too much energy, there's not enough concentration to hold it or to sustain it and it manifests in several different ways. We can feel this restlessness in the body sometimes. Have you had the experience at all of just sitting and feeling that you're going to jump out of your skin? You know, it just It just becomes almost impossible to sit with the energy. There was one time in my practice in Burma and I'd been there for a while and for some reason there was one sitting every day, it was was an evening sitting around 8 o'clock, it was the same time every day, I would sit down and this intense restlessness would come over me. You know, and I'd sit and sit and just struggling to be with it. Then when the sitting was over, I would just get up and basically run around the monastery, you know, a few times. So here's this tall westerner, you know, the monks must have thought I was nuts. But I just, I had to do something with the energy, it was, can get very intense. Because of this state of restlessness or udacca, that also becomes the cause for so many of our discursive thoughts. They're really coming out of restlessness of mind. You know, they can be thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, which we're very familiar with. The thoughts coming out of restlessness can be those of guilt or regret or self-judgment. You know, about we're sitting and as the mind gets quieter, but then this restlessness comes in, producing these thoughts of Regret or guilt, often about past actions we've done that haven't been skillful. You know, different of the unwholesome actions. And so then we start obsessing you know, with our guilt or self judgment. Or maybe it's about wholesome actions that we didn't do. You know, we think back and we oh, I really should have done that. And so we're lost in regret. This is natural for these, for these thoughts to come up in the practice. You know in the book Zorba the Greek, one of the characters says self-knowledge is always bad news. And I think we all know that you know, having been watching our minds because we do open to all of the skillful but also unskillful actions that we've done in our lives. The question is, how are we with it? How do we deal with it? It's very helpful to distinguish between guilt and remorse. And this distinction parallels the distinction between discursive thought and wise reflection. The feeling of guilt is really very self-oriented. It's self-centered. Now, I've done this, and I'm so bad, and it's a very unforgiving state, centered around the I, centered around the self. And it arises, these thoughts, these obsessive thoughts of guilt, arise out of restlessness, arise out of uddhacca. Remorse is quite different. Remorse sees the same event, but it's arising out of wisdom, not out of restlessness. It's arising out of a clear seeing. And so the feeling of remorse, Yeah, we see what the action was, we understand, we recognize that that was unskillful, we're seeing it clearly, but it's not coming from that restless mind, which produces guilt, It's coming from a wise reflection. So we see it, we understand it, we take responsibility for it, we forgive and we let it go. Two very different states of mind. Thinking produced by restlessness often leads to the comparing mind, the endlessly comparing mind, comparing mind with other yogis. How long do they sit? Do they sit longer than me, or do I sit longer? How many cushions are they using? Do I sit higher or lower? How much food are they taking? Do I take more or less? Oh, they're really walking slowly. Oh, they're walking too quick. It's just endless! This is not discriminating wisdom. This is just discursive thought coming out of the restless mind. Restlessness can also take the form of yogi mind, the yogi mind phenomena. And this is a phenomena where thoughts come out of all proportion, either to their importance or their, con- their connection to reality. know, we can start obsessing in our minds about the tiniest little things, In past years, we've, we have actually created a peace treaty here at IMS, but in past years, there used to be these window wars. You know, how much should the windows be open? How much should they be closed? Ooh. And the mind just, the yogi mind just kind of getting totally lost in this, as if this is the most important thing. Sometimes it really gets way out. At one point, this is quite a few years ago, I was on retreat, here, and sitting up in M101. And as I was sitting, I started hearing these voices coming out of the radiator. And they were really clear, I mean, it was really clear. And so I just kind of said, oh, that's interesting, the voices are coming up all the way from the kitchen, you know, and they're coming up through the pipes and out the radiator. And I was hearing these entire conversations of what I thought were people talking in the kitchen and the conversations were wild. You know, One friend had killed another one another had died of you know, some disease and, and I'm sitting there, what's going on here? You know, all this stuff is happening and they're not telling me. And it was completely real to me. I I had to go down to the kitchen and say okay, why aren't you telling me about this stuff? I mean really, voices through the radiator? (laughs) But our yogi mind born out of this certain kind of restlessness we can get really lost in it. There's also a more subtle manifestation of restlessness which I find really interesting and that happens really when the practice is going very well and we begin to see the mind is quite concentrated and we're going along and begin to observe even the momentary getting lost in a thought you know we're not carried away we're not obsessing with our thoughts, but just we're going along and then just a momentary getting caught and then the thought passes and mostly I think we just sort of ignore that because it's not really disturbing our practice but when we look at that phenomenon more carefully begin to see that just that slipping off the object even if it's just for a few moments is really a reflection of, or a manifestation of this quality of Utacha, of restlessness in the mind. And that really opened up the understanding of why restlessness, as a mental factor, is not purified, is not eradicated from the mind until the final, complete stage of enlightenment. You know, even after we've seen through the illusion of self even after we've eradicated desire and aversion, which is no small accomplishment, (laughs) restlessness is still there. So this is a very deep, and as I say, sometimes it manifests in very obvious ways, you know, that strong, restlessness in the body, or the mind really agitated, you know, in guilt or worry or self-judgment. But sometimes it's just seeing it as this very subtle, unsettledness so how to work with these different expressions of restlessness again the first the first strategy is to recognize them all as a manifestation of this particular factor and sometimes I think it's useful to use the Pali word just because it helps us depersonalize it a little bit. So for example, we're racked by guilt. We simply note Utacha. restlessness. We don't get caught up, you know, in the content. We're seeing it as a manifestation of that mind state. You know, we're just lost in the comparing mind. We make the note Utacha. restlessness. And I think it's a way of seeing very clearly not the content, which is really not that important and after a while not that interesting, but we're seeing the very process of how the mind is working. What qualities of mind are present which are producing those thoughts. And by noting it in this way, and maybe using the Pali would be helpful, for me, it really serves to remember oh, all these thoughts, Udacha restlessness. Not I, not mine, not myself. It's all just this impersonal process going on. In working with restlessness, beside the careful noting of it, it's helpful also to understand the energetics of it. And restlessness comes when there's too much energy and not enough concentration to hold it. And so in one way or another, we want to strengthen the concentration factor. And we can do this in two ways, and they're really two opposite ways. One way of strengthening the concentration is by reining the mind in. It's very scattered, it's very dispersed, very restless. So we rein it in to the object, coming back just to the breath. Working with connecting at the beginning of the breath, sustaining for the duration of the breath, and making it even a narrower focus, just half a breath. Maybe a whole breath is too much. Just half a breath, half a breath, half a breath. So we're tethering the mind to the object. And when we're restless, this takes some determination, some resoluteness. But sometimes the restlessness can arise because we're actually trying too hard. The mind is too tight. We're over-efforting. So if that's the cause of restlessness, then what we want to do is relax a bit, make our minds more spacious, more open and relaxing back into awareness, opening to sound, opening to the whole body, letting the mind become as vast as the sky. The sky can, can hold, can contain all the energy in the world. So when our minds get that big, then the energy that's present is not spilling over the edges, the edges of the container. So we come to stability We work with doubt, we work with restlessness. The last of the hindrances that I'll mention this evening is the hindrance of sloth and torpor, you know, which in Pali is called tenamitta. And we feel this as sleepiness, we feel it as drowsiness, we feel it as a certain kind of dullness in the mind when the mind becomes contracted, it becomes sluggish. And it happens when the fiery aspect of energy is no longer there, it's absent. You know, an image which is used to describe it is what does butter become, what's it like when butter is cold? You know, it becomes hard and congealed. It's very hard uh, to spread. When sloth and torpor is present in the mind, when there's not the fire of energy to warm it up, the mind becomes hard and congealed, not at all pliable. This sleepiness or dullness is very familiar, of course, during the first days of a retreat. But even afterwards, you may notice that it hits at certain times in the day. You know, maybe, maybe there's just one sitting or two sittings. Where at that time every day, begin to feel the sleepiness. Mostly in our lives, we are running on the energy of stimulation. Now, outside in our normal lives, we're just being stimulated on all sides. Here, there's very little stimulation. So, of course, the natural first response no stimulation, go to sleep. And so, for almost everybody, there are withdrawal symptoms, as we withdraw from our usual level of stimulation. But over time, and this is what's so remarkable about the practice, over time we begin to connect with a much deeper and more sustainable energy source within us. Over time we actually begin to feel more and more wakeful. I remember in my, my India days, there was a very interesting progression. It's Like the first many weeks of practice, my mind wouldn't wake up till maybe six in the evening. You know, I would be going along, going along, doing the practice, but then by six, it would finally become alert. And then I practice, practice, and then I noticed, oh, it's getting alert at three. You know, and then, oh, alert at 12. You know, and just as I continued in practice and connected with this energy that is the mind-body process, the alertness started happening earlier and earlier. And for others of you, it may happen in just the reverse. You know, you wake up full of energy, you know, and by three o'clock in the afternoon, you're dead. You keep going, and then it's six, and then it's nine, and then it's midnight we extend the other way. But the real meaning of sloth and torpor is not even this feeling of sleepiness or dullness. There's a deeper understanding of how this factor, this hindrance works in our practice and in our lives and it has much more important implications than whether we happen to be sleepy in a sitting or not. And that is the manifestation of sloth and torpor as this habit or energy of withdrawing from difficulties. It's that factor, that quality in the mind, which in the face of difficulties in the face of challenges, simply wants to withdraw, wants to avoid them. It doesn't want to engage. And this is true whether it's in our retreat practice here or in the difficulties and challenges in our lives. This mind state, this fact, factors of sloth and torpor in this meaning really makes our mind very inactive, very lazy, pulling back. And it doesn't allow us to draw on the strength that we actually have. We have the strength to deal with the difficulties, but when sloth and torpor are strong, we're not connecting. It doesn't allow us to connect. There's a subtle level of sloth and torpor too which arises just as with restlessness when the practice is going very well. And this is often overlooked because when the concentration gets strong and the mindfulness gets strong and we're really cruising and where it doesn't take much effort we're just sitting and there's an easy flow of mindfulness what can happen in this Really, quite advanced stage of meditation is that because it's not taking much effort at this time, sloth and torpor begins to enter into the mind because in a certain way, we've become complacent. We're on cruise control, you know and it's still going, and it's going smoothly but we've lost a certain quality of vibrancy, of alertness. We're just cruising along. So it's to begin to see that that's the subtle level of sloth and torpor, and that what we need to do at that time, when our practice is going well in that way, we need to keep it energized. one sloth and torpor has taken over the mind whether it's in this very obvious way whether it's in the pervasive way of just withdrawing from difficulties or the very subtle way that i mentioned once sloth and torpor has taken over it doesn't like to let go it really holds on tight because it feels very cozy and comfortable You know, we're sitting and we're kind of in this state. It's either of the dullness or the cruise control or, hmm. You know, we can just sit there and hang out. It's the quality of mind that likes the snooze button on the alarm clock. It doesn't like the alarm, but it likes it. Oh, yeah, 10 more (laughs) minutes. And sloth and torpor has one other interesting manifestation and that is that mind state doesn't really like energetic people (laughs) and I saw this really clearly one time I was in and it was a retreat with Saida Pandita in Australia and just across, the yogi across from me was this very energetic yogi. Really energetic. You know, so I was, I thought I was working pretty hard. But, you know, it was 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. I thought, well, I put in a good day. <laughs> He'd still be up. He'd be practicing. You know, I'd get up at, I don't know, 4, 4.30, you know, making a good effort. I'd get up he'd be walking. <laughs> so at first, I mean, there was a lot of comparing and self-judging, and then my self-judgment, I started projecting it, you know, onto him and seeing all his faults, you know. And I was really, I was, my mind was getting very full of <laughs> then not self-judgment, but judgment about him and you know, criticism in one thing or another, but at a certain point, I saw. I realized what was happening, and I began to see it all uh, impersonally. Oh, yeah, this is just Tina mita This is just sloth and torpor doing its thing of not liking energetic people, and it really helped me first depersonalize it all, seeing that the state itself was not mine, not self, not I. And it lightened up the whole situation. It became lighter, it became freer, it became more humorous. You know, I was just watching my mind do this thing, which was really quite ridiculous. And in the end, this person actually became very inspiring to me. You know, instead of letting the mind state condition all those thoughts, I could relax, my mind lightened up, and it inspired my own efforts in energy. Sometimes sloth and torpor fools us, tricks us, because it comes masquerading as compassion. Just like doubt can masquerade as wisdom. These mental factors are very tricky. It takes a lot of discernment to really see what is going on. So sometimes sloth and torpor comes in the guise of compassion. You know, we might feel tired, we might feel bored, we might feel restless. Then sloth and torpor comes in and says, if I work too hard, I'm sure to get sick. You know, I better take care of myself. Let me go take a rest, let me take a nap. And it sounds so caring and nurturing. (laughs) Yeah, I really should do that. This little nap is just right now. Of course, there are times when taking rest is appropriate. But not always. And we have to exercise some discernment to see what's going on here. Is this really compassion? You know, Is there wisdom here? Or is it just sloth and torpor trying to fool us? I'll just share with you one story. This was from my early days practicing with Goenka in India. And in his retreats, in those years anyway, uh, we would get up at four and then sit for two hours before breakfast. And in, in that uh, technique of a passing, there's no walking. There's no walking meditation. So it's a lot of sitting in the day. So we'd get up at four and sit for two hours so the first thing I did when I got into it was head for a wall and I, I wanted my spot against the wall. So I'd sit and then after about 10 minutes i kind of leaned back against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be gone, you know, and so at least be sleeping for an hour and a half of the sitting. <laughs> and then the bell would ring, get up, have breakfast, go through the day. And every morning, the same thing happened. You know, I would do the same little routine. And after a while, I started thinking, this is stupid. You know, why don't I just stay in bed and be rested? And, you know, then I'd get up and at least I'd be alert. But I didn't listen to that voice. And I just kept doing it. I just kept getting up. And it was amazing. I don't know how I remember how long it took now, but, you know, it might have been 10 days or a week or two weeks. I don't know. At a certain point, I went in there, sat down at four in the morning. My mind was totally alert the whole time. And if I hadn't gone through all of those days of falling asleep and just persevered through it, it wouldn't have gotten to that point of working through it. So we need to be careful about these voices in our minds you know, and say, okay, what really is compassion and appropriate? What is just this voice of, oh, it's a little difficult, let me withdraw from it. When the mind is contracted under the influence of sloth and torpor, you know, when there's this pulling back, when there's this retreating mode from difficulty, there's not much joy or pleasure in our lives. Because we're always kind of pulling in. There's not much delight. So the question is, how can we work with this factor, which is very strong at times, you know, and works on so many different levels, how can we begin to incorporate it into our practice and gain some understanding and some freedom? The force, the fiery force in the mind that warms up this congealed state, that heats it up, is that fire, as the fiery aspect of energy. You know, it's arousing the energy. That's the fire that begins to soften the mind, make it more pliable. So, how do we arouse the energy in that state? First, as with all the others, a really careful noting. You know, as soon as sleepiness, dullness, heaviness, as soon as it arises, that becomes the object. We have to note it carefully and precisely. It's really investigating what is this experience that I'm calling sleepiness, I'm calling sloth and torpor. What is it? We begin to look carefully into our mind state, into our body, that itself arouses energy. You know, careful noting of other objects, adding more touch points. There's a principle in practice, in meditation, which is also true in life, but one which we often miss. And that is the principle is that effort creates energy. And usually we think just the opposite we think we need energy to make effort. But if you're feeling really tired and you go out and exercise, how do you feel at the end? Generally, we feel quite energized by it because we've made the effort. In exactly the same way, when sloth and torpor is present, if we make the effort through careful noting, through adding more objects, more touch points, the effort creates the energy and we become more wakeful. And then there are the usual suggestions, the antidotes, which I'm sure you've heard many times. You know, open the eyes, stand up, walk faster, or sometimes walking slower. There was a time I was in the dining room in one retreat, and Sharon Salzberg was also on retreat walking next to me, and she was like the queen of slow walking. You know, it's like, she might take an hour to walk from here to the dining room. I mean, it was amazing. I had a few comparing thoughts there. <laughs> so anyway, we were walking next to one another in the dining room, and she was in this totally creep mode, you know, <laughs> creeping mode. <laughs> <laughs> and I was feeling really tired, you know. So I was I was walking faster. But it wasn't helping. You know, I was walking fast, but I was still really sleepy. And then I I noticed her, and, and I thought, well, maybe I'll try walking really slowly. And I just brought it down to an extreme. I wanted to see if I could walk slower than she could. <laughs> you know, so, so so I wanted to see how how slowly can I walk and still move? You know, it was. Like, so it's just microscopic movement. It was amazing. Within two steps, I was totally alert. Because the, the effort to do that and the precision I was bringing completely uh, energized my mind. So there's not always one way. You know, We need to experiment and just see, okay, in this situation, what will work? There's a variation on opening the eyes, which can be very helpful. In another retreat, again, there was just a lot of sleepiness. So I was sitting and I decided to open my, kind of this, these waves of sleepiness were coming. So I decided to open my eyes, but it was so strong that you know, I opened my eyes and then a minute later they were closed and I was nodding so I thought, okay, I'm going to sit with my eyes and prop them open you know, the, you know, the cartoons like <sighs> so that's a total exaggeration of open eyes you know, so i sitting like that <laughs> 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 and I was really interested because I could just feel this kind of wave come down <laughs> and I could f- it was interesting, I could feel that heavy, sleepy energy but I just kept my eyes wide open. <laughs> and the wave actually passed. I could feel it energetically. I could feel the wave pass, and it went down, and then it went out.. And then again, another one came. And I did the same thing. I was just And this happened two or three times. There were two or three or four waves coming down, but I still And after that, all the sleepiness was gone. So we can actually have some fun with it. You know, it's like just experimenting and playing, okay, well how can I keep alert in this situation on a more subtle level. And this is a little tricky, so I'm a little cautious in saying this. But since you're all three month yogis, <laughs> six weeks yogis. Sometimes it's our attachment to clarity that keeps us from being mindful of sleepiness. We're so attached to clarity that we're struggling in a certain way with sleepiness that's making us more sleepy. And again, I had all of this, you know, all of these suggestions come out of my own experience with this hindrance. Uh, One year when Deepama was here, She had suggested, I was on retreat with some others, and she suggested to only sleep three hours and not to lie down during the day. Well, that was a stretch. I mean, it really was, and so I was really sleepy during the day. But she said one other thing. She said, if you fall asleep when you're sitting, never mind. So it was kind of like Permission. Permission. So I only slept three hours. I didn't lie down during the day. At different sittings, I would get quite sleepy, but Deepa Ma said, well, never mind. And it was really interesting because I stopped struggling, you know, in an unproductive way with the sleepiness out of kind of this attachment in the mind. I just relaxed into it and there may have been a kind of you know a few moments of nodding, but because I wasn't struggling so much, I actually came out of it much quicker. And I was like, Psh-. and then all of a sudden the mind would be alert. So there's a little piece in here that might be worth exploring. It's a little dangerous, as I said, because you might well succumb. But actually, concentration and calm is on the side, you know, of sleepiness. You know, the mind is getting very calm, very concentrated. Just like a lot of, a lot of energy is on the side of restlessness, calm and concentration is on the side of sleepiness. Which means that when we're feeling sleepy, within that state, if you're, if you're really sensitive in there, there are threads of calm and concentration to be found. Now the mind's not agitated, it's very relaxed. Generally it's the sleepiness that takes over. But if you bring some investigation or some ease or some sensitivity and just kind of pull the thread of calm and concentration out of that state and then add just a dollop of energy, you can come to this place of wonderful balance. Again, all of this is suggesting, as with all of these states, it's not "I'm so sleepy and I'm a bad yogi" and this and that. That's useless. This is just a mental state. It's a mental factor which has certain qualities, certain characteristics, and you know, we can really learn about it and we can explore and we, in all of these ways that I mentioned. Just one last little piece about sloth and torpor. It's learning to see that the difficulties that come up in practice, and this is, this was in the more general meaning of sloth and torpor, seeing the difficulties which come up, to really see them as challenges, rather than as problems for us. So we don't pull back, we don't avoid... There was a time in my practice, I was working with Saida, who, as you know, is this great warrior, and he, he called that up, you know, in most of us who were practicing with him. There was one time in my practice which, contrary to my nature, I started, I started using the mantra, given a choice, choose the difficult. Because my propensity is given a choice, choose the easy. And it was really interesting to work with the other side of it. Yeah, given a choice, choose what's difficult and the energy that came from just working in that way at times. Even the greatest disciples of the Buddha dealt with sloth and torpor. At one time Moggallana, Mahamogalana, the chief disciple of the Buddha, before he was enlightened, he was meditating in the forest. His mind became very withered from sloth and torpor and the Buddha looked into his mind and this is the dialogue Mogalana, are you drowsy <laughs> yes sir I am nodding <laughs> Buddha said listen and I will teach you ways of overcoming it and then the Buddha went through many of these same ways that I've described but at the very end of this little dialogue but if none of these work take rest. (laughs) Even in taking rest, it's interesting to to see that really what we need for the most part is not sleep. What I found is that even when I need rest during the day, if I lie down and are just there until that moment when the mind and body relax. Do you know that moment just before sleep when you can feel the letting go? It's just psh. I found that I could easily get up right at that point and be totally refreshed. Because it's not the sleep that's needed. It's just that it's just that moment of letting everything, letting the whole system relax. So I would suggest you look, you watch for that moment and then see what happens if you get up and continue your practice. I think you'll, you'll feel quite refreshed. It's important to understand that all of these states of doubt, of restlessness, of sloth and torpor, are not self, they're not mine, they're not I. They're not intrinsic to the mind. They come as visitors. Problem is, they've come as visitors for so long you know, that we think they live here. We really have unwittingly made them quite welcome you know, in the homes of our mind. And one or another of them have become reasonably permanent residents. When we're not mindful of these states, they really hinder the development of concentration. They hinder wisdom. And they obscure the natural radiance of the mind. When we are mindful of them, when we really work with them, when we apply mindfulness and awareness and discernment, all of these states become a very vital part of our practice and a vital part of our awakening. I'd just like to close with a very brief teaching by Ryokan, that wonderful... 18th century Zen hermit, monk, and poet. He said, Even if you've read through countless books, you're better off sticking to a single phrase. If anyone asks which one, tell them, Know your mind just as it is. And that's really our practice. Let's sit for a moment.